This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about by my co-host, John Syracusa. How are you, John? I'm pretty good. This is episode number 36. We want to say thanks to our two sponsors, SourceBits.com and SifterApp.com, who we'll tell you about as the program goes on. We also want to mention that Bandwidth for the Show is brought to you by Midas Green Tech, virtual private servers submerged in oil. Get free bandwidth today at MidasGreenTech.com slash 5 by 5 36 of these. How does that make you feel? Just dandy. Dandy. You know, when people like it, a couple of people said they liked how you said submerged in oil, and now you're all self conscious about it. So now it's like, I, you're like, no, you're, I try you're, to vary it. I try to you're, vary. you're overthinking it. Now I'm afraid the same thing is going to happen with the complaining part. Well, it's going away. The, the oil. Yeah, but the complaining part is like going to be the new oil. Don't steal my thunder. All right. How are you? I'm fine. <laughs> Did you watch this Terra Nova? No, I have that on TiVo, although no, I, tried to, I tried to remain spoiler-free and like muted you when you were talking about that a couple minutes ago because I didn't want to, but I hear that you didn't like it. I, I assumed I wouldn't like it too, but I, I haven't gotten to it yet. I'm a little bit behind. Okay. Yeah, I did, I did watch The Fringe, but... We should talk about that. Maybe. Maybe, maybe we'll get to it. I, I'm also glad that Faith didn't pick me as the mean person. <laughs> right one of the one of the other co-hosts got, got I, was, I, was, I was sweating that my fingers are crossed I'm like don't let it be me don't let it be me you know what no and I'll, I'll tell you I'll tell you why you are despite despite the way that, that you come across uh, you are actually quite uh, a kind sensitive person behind the scenes beneath your uh, Romulan exterior you are uh, quite compassionate you care about the little people mm-hmm. that's me all right, All right so, so what are we I talking had, about? I had stuff prepared for this week. It was we were going to finish off the Microsoft stuff, and then I was going to go into what's wrong with Microsoft. But the Amazon stuff has come along and smushed that in my mind. So I will, <laughs> I will delay it. <laughs> the mind, I, the mind smushing effects of Amazon. Yeah, so far, still not getting lots of complaints about Microsoft. One or two people said they could care less about Microsoft, but mostly no, no complaints and a few people liked it. So maybe we will actually come back to the tail end of the Windows Eight stuff next week. And uh, going through uh, what's wrong with Microsoft or the Amazon stuff was interesting enough that I want to do that. But I'm behind on the Amazon stuff. I actually I haven't even watched the whole presentation yet. I read a lot about it, uh, but I didn't read. I didn't. Sorry, I didn't see the entire video. I'm like halfway through it, mostly because it was so boring. Did you try to watch that video? It's bad. He's. I saw you tweeting. Where can I watch the whole? Yeah, and then I found that I'll put it in the show notes link. But like I dare you, like I'm surprised anyone left that room alive. I dare you to watch this thing and not be bored to death. Oh, not, not a good presentation. And I don't know why. Like they had exciting things to announce. And uh, Jeff Bezos, Bezos, I don't know how you pronounce his last name. He's, I'll go he's with a nice Bezos. guy, personal. He's got interesting things to say. But it just it wasn't the electricity wasn't there. I don't know. Hmm. Doesn't have the the Steve Jobs magnetism, perhaps. It's not it's so much that. It's also the people in the room. Like, they weren't enthusiastic about it. I think it's just press. So you'd hear, like, a camera, an SLR <laughs> mirrors snapping up and down. You know, the, right. the, people say it's the shutter sound, but it's the, it's the mirrors. Uh, you'd hear that, but you wouldn't hear people. Like, people weren't amped for these Kindles, which is, which is strange because I know people who really were amped for these Kindle stuff. Like, there was excitement about this announcement, but those people were not in the room. Right, like, when you they know? announced the, the price, you, you expected people to have some reaction to it. But I, And I don't know if it's because it was already leaked and everybody yeah. knew what the price would be, but it was, like, 
drop dead silent. It, it, it was all jaded press. Every announcement they made, and he didn't, and that that hurt him. He couldn't, you know, feed off of that. I don't know. It was boring presentation. I'm about. I'm just up to the part where they're announcing the Kindle Fire. So I didn't. But I, I want to talk about any of it. I think I, I have all the facts covered. I just wanted to see the presentation to see how did it really go, uh, because I had heard different things about. It. But before we do that, we have follow up. Uh, try to get through this quick. I have a little bit of old follow up, Thunderbolt follow up. Uh, I mentioned I mentioned last time that I got the Thunderbolt monitor, didn't I? Did you? I don't think you mentioned that. I think I, you mentioned. No, maybe you did mention it because yes, yeah, I, you were telling me that your wife, the, yeah. your wife was plugging into it. You did mention that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I've got that set up now, and people are asking me what I think of it. I mean, it works as advertised. You plug, you plug your air into it with a little Thunderbolt cable, and you got a full fledged computer. And so far, no issues with it really. One time when we whacked the space bar to wake the machine up, the other monitor didn't wake up, like the big monitor didn't wake up, and I didn't really know what to do about that. We just had to restart the machine. Hmm. You couldn't you know, detect displays going to system preferences. I couldn't get to the windows. They're all on the main screen. Oh, on the main. Hmm. Yeah. So the menu bars moved over there and everything. So, so how, did you, re- how did you restart it then? Just SSH and shut down minus R now. Come on. We're, we're, we are. Uh, I, I, well, people, maybe not everybody in the audience knows about this. Yeah, I know. But if you don't, I don't want to explain. I, I, I would like to explain. What you do is you go to system preferences. <laughs> you go into sharing. And there will be a checkbox that is called a remote login. By checking that, you will be allowing... Uh, SSH connection, so then you could go to an, another machine if you'd like, and that other machine could be used to SSH into that box, and then you could shut it down using the what shut I, shut down command by itself, or do you still do the dash H? Shut down minus R now. Oh, to reboot. Yes. Didn't want to manually boot it up. If you really want to feel cool, you can type sync a couple times in every turn. <laughs> sync, 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 yeah. semicolon, <laughs> shut down space dash R space now. No, I don't right. think we need to sync these days. Yeah, no, but it's fine. Uh, I wonder if that command's even on Mac OS X. I doubt it. I'm or it's just out. hooked up to a do-nothing command. Uh, so anyway, I got, I got a Thunderbolt display. I think I mentioned this last time. The only weird thing I've seen about it is that the Thunderbolt connector gets slightly warm. Huh. Which is a little bit creepy, but we do know that from previous things that there's a little chip in there. And that, I assume, is what's getting warm. Uh, not hot, you know. Uh, so... But the reason I bring it up is two things. I had, I had two links from a couple weeks ago that I never got to. One was for a uh, PCI Express breakout box that gives you three external PCI Express blo- uh, slots over Thunderbolt connector. Mm. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's a Magma Express box. And the other one is Belkin has uh, a little breakout box that gives you three USB ports, a Thunderbolt port so you can daisy chain stuff, a Firewire port, and a Gigabit Ethernet port. So it's kind of like the Thunderbolt display without the display part. Uh, so you can, if you want your Air to have a whole bunch more ports. We were thinking like maybe there'll be Thunderbolt to Firewire connectors or whatever, but I, I bet these little dock port thingies become more popular because you don't just get a Firewire port, you get Firewire, Ethernet, a daisy chain thing, and more USB ports. Uh, and that, these are all from uh, earlier in the month, but I never linked to them, so they will be in the show notes uh, as well. So it's interesting that we're finally seeing some accessories go out of this uh, for Thunderbolt. And finally, the iFixit did a teardown of the Thunderbolt display. And this is a surprising amount of stuff in there. Did you see that, uh, that URL? No, can you please put that in the show notes? I have not seen that one. Yeah, it's in the URL. They, they break it up and you would think it's going to be a big display and then some little printed circuit board. But there's a lot of circuit boardy stuff in there. Like, well, the big thing in one of the stories says, it's got a subwoofer. Like, it's got, it's got two speakers and a third one, presumably for low volume stuff. It doesn't look like much of a subwoofer. I mean, the cone is not that big. Uh, but it's got. It looks like it has more printed circuit boards in this monitor, considerably more uh, than in the MacBook Air. 
and there's a little power supply. And uh, once again, I have unknowingly bought a display device that has a fan in it. Uh, the good thing in this case, <laughs> this is a reference to your plasma television. I didn't realize had fans in it, right? But you the good and, thing you in this case, and fans, man. Well, it's the noise, but in this case, I did not realize it had a fan until I did the iFixit thing. The thing is totally silent, like you know, and I don't. Because when the air is on, it makes almost no noise. And this monitor, I had no idea there was a fan in it. So don't be afraid of the fan. It passes the Syracuse fan test. I could not hear it, and it didn't bother me. Maybe, like, in the summer, it'll get hot and start cranking up, and it will bother me. But so far, uh, not an issue. Uh, but seeing all this junk shoved into that display, uh, as I tweeted earlier this week, makes me think that the idea of putting a GPU in there is not so crazy. Because there's already a lot of stuff in there. It's not just one little circuit board in the display. It's a pretty big circuit board three speakers, uh, you know, the analog power supply inside there. It's it's very interesting. I like this new, the new Thunderbolt future that we live in. I approve. Do you think, you know, for a long time we've had USB. It's been forever. And that has become the de facto standard for pretty much all non, I guess you would say, that, you know, things that are not too high bandwidth. It's It's been the standard. It's been what, what people use. Do you see a day when there will be one type of connector for everything, and maybe it's Thunderbolt, but that whether it's a, any kind of peripheral mouse, keyboard, hard drive, monitor, whatever, that it'll just you just plug it in and it just works? Is that where we're headed? Is it Thunderbolt? There's, there's two things working against that. One, for, for some things, you can say there's some sort of convergence on a single standard or thing, and those are mostly things that have to do with human perception. So at a certain point... Uh, you reach the limit of, of human hearing perception. We're not there yet in terms of audio quality because of the compression and, and artifacts and stuff, but eventually making the audio quality any better doesn't make a difference, and you would imagine that you would eventually converge on some kind of single standard for audio that is totally maxes out human perception, you're perfectly good to go, and then what point is there in having other standards? You know, because bandwidth isn't a concern or whatever. Uh, and same thing with visually. But for, for uh, connectors, I think they'll always be a cheap low-speed one, and another high-speed one, simply because our appetite for high-speed will never be sated by any particular technology. Like It's not as if we're going to say, we never need any more bandwidth, and eventually our high-bandwidth connector becomes cheap enough to put in serial boxes, therefore this will be the one connector. I think there will always be the cheap low-speed, more expensive high-speed uh, split in consumer electronics. Uh, now, it could be that our bandwidth requirements never run out on the high end, but they do run out in the consumer space because the only things we're transferring are media that max out our human perception. So we say, well, I never need to send you any more than like a, an 80K HD movie with 20 channels of audio and blah, blah, blah. And that fits over now what is now the cheap low-speed connector. So we never need the high-speed connector, but I don't think that'll happen in our lifetime. So I would say for everyone listening to this, for the time that you're alive, there will be a low-speed and a high-speed standard for connecting your uh, consumer electronic devices. Oh, uh, more follow-up. Metro, get some feedback from Steve Holzer, if I'm pronouncing his name right, saying that one of the reasons that uh, Metro might be uh, predominantly landscape is that remember that Windows 8 also has to run on PCs, and of course, PC monitors are landscape. Mm. That made me think about the old days with the portrait Mac displays. Do you remember those? Yeah. Those are great. I still see people at work. You see this a lot if you work with a lot of developers. They will buy, you know, whatever the Dell monitors they buy you, and, and they're rotatable, and they'll rotate them just to get the big, long strip of code, right? Right. Especially if they're Windows users and like to have everything zoomed to full screen. Now they can zoom their code window, which is always black with dark blue text on it. I don't know how these people don't go blind. But anyway, 
they will zoom that thing to full screen in a big portrait display. So we've, you know, that know. actually, that's a really good uh, topic for perhaps a future segment on a show is, is exactly the, what you just identified is the different styles of people looking at, at screens. Do you prefer the BB edit style white background with dark texts, uh, like a page of paper, or do you prefer the, the more sort of hipster black screen with colorful text on it? Uh, which of those is that's not hipster it used to be like terminal nerd but yeah well like, no but today I, it's considered hipster like if well, if, if you don't use the if you have seven colors text like made halloween theme or whatever yeah that's yes that is a whole other topic but uh and you know what i think it comes down to is that a lot of these uh kids today using the the dark color background it's because they're in the dark they're sitting in the dark and if you have the white background while you're sitting in the dark at 3 a.m. writing code like uh, listening to that uh, emo music then uh, it's too harsh it's too bright you can't look at it so that's why they have the dark background and then just the characters stand out and plus it makes them feel like neo in uh, the matrix the first yeah, one people at work aren't sitting in the dark though no that's why if you're if you're in an office if you're in a brightly lit fluorescent office like you prefer uh then you've got to have the white background I, th- I think topic for a future show all right. Um, more follow up. This is this is a good one from. Oh, and by the way, someone in the chat room said it was that Steve Holtz. Steve H O E L Z E R. I'm sorry, I don't know. This is a good tip for people writing in. If you think I'm not going to be able to pronounce your name, put in some phonetic thing to give me some help. Uh, speaking of, here's Jonathan Plodre. P L O U D R E. This was a good letter. Plodre. Yeah, this is a good letter. Very succinct. I'll read it pretty much word for word. He says. You're killing me, John. I'm dying. <laughs> it's pronounced Mario. It's not pronounced Mario. It's Mario. When I discussed, uh, mm-hmm. I, you yeah. know, that's a northeastern thing. Mario. And what I replied it was like, if you grew up on Long Island, people say Mario. Yeah, I, I understand, and we all have our pronunciation pet peeves. My pronunciation pet peeve is, and I'll, I'll test this on Dan because you're from Florida, so God knows how you. I am not from Florida. Please, Philadelphia, whatever. I don't know. You spent most. When did you move to Florida? I spent the first maybe third of my life in Philadelphia, and it was more than enough time for me to develop a Philadelphian Northeastern accent and recognize them. And in Florida, everybody's from New York anyway. Uh, yeah. All right. So anyway, South this, Florida, this is my pronunciation quiz. Uh, some pe- How do you pronounce these three words? M-A-R-Y, the girl's name. M-A-R-R-Y, as in to wed, and M-E-R-R-Y, as in Christmas. They're all the same. Mary. They, they're, Mary. They're, actually, they're actually not all the same. They are all the same. They're the all fir- the same. Wait, let's read it through. What's the first one? M-A-R-Y, the girl's name. Mary. M-A-R-R-Y, as in to wed. Mary. And M-E-R-R-Y, as in Christmas. Mary. See, that's three words. You did it right. What about W-A-T-E-R? Mm, that's, that's getting into more regional, but I'm the thing I'm annoyed with is when words that have distinct pronunciations, they don't have different distinct pronunciations in different parts of the country. They just blend. Uh, there's a good, I wish I could find this. I've searched for it many times. There was a good map of the U.S. showing how many different vowel sounds and d- different sounds there are in the, in the accent in different regions of the country. And what it showed is, it showed the current map as it exists now, and it showed the map over time showing that the number of vowel sounds number of distinct vowel sounds only decreases. In other words, the people who, who say all three of those words the same are expanding to absorb the people who differentiate. The, the differentiation of vowel sounds is disappearing because it's, it's, like, a, it's like a virus spreading across the country of the <laughs> language becoming you know, more, uh, less, less distinct. And I'm sure that's probably true 
compared our language to like old English or all these things from centuries ago, I'm sure we've, it's just, that's the overall trend is fewer vowel sounds, uh, fewer distinctions. I, I don't know, uh, but I still think if you're going to marry, 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 you should know that you are wedding uh, a girl who is happy. <laughs> you can take that test at home. That should I, be right with, more, with the Marvel comic test than the marry, marry, marry test. Um, so yes, I apologize for saying Mario. I think I said, I think I said Yahoo sometime, and people, I don't remember what I said. I said, I said, I didn't say Yahoo. I said Yahoo. Yahoo. I, I, I would mostly blame that on Long Island, but yeah. I'm, I'm proud of my Long Island heritage, and I wear my mispronunciations in that regard proudly. Um, what else do we have here? Something about coffee script, which I should talk about at some time, but not today. It's taking a long time to read. Should I, why don't you read these notes? And I'll do a sponsor then, since you're obviously, you can unplug. Uh, our first sponsor today, longtime sponsor, SourceBits. This episode is sponsored by SourceBits. Uh, these guys provide software design and development services for iOS, Android, Mac, and the web. Uh, they're at the bleeding edge of emerging technologies. They've got tons and tons of experience. They've got a successful track record. Uh, building well-tested, visually stunning, world-class apps. And here's the thing. This is what I'm finding out a lot of the time, is that there's people who maybe you're a good iOS developer and you've got an idea for an iOS app, right? But maybe you don't have such a such a, a great set of experience building the back-end services that you want to power. And maybe you don't know how to do uh, push notifications, for example. Who knows? Well, the point is, these guys, they can do the piece that you don't know how to do. So maybe you're a developer, but you're just not an expert in every aspect of what you want to build. They'll build you the other part, or they'll build you the whole app. It doesn't matter. Maybe you want an Android version of your iOS app, and you don't want to learn what you have to learn to do that. Well, go to sourcebits.com. These guys will hook you up. That's it. That's the end of the follow-up. I think we can start on the Amazon stuff now. A lot of Amazon stuff. So if you've been, if, you, if anybody hasn't been paying attention to this, Amazon uh, earlier in the week announced some new Kindles. Uh, w- there had already been a lot of news and information about uh, the, the Kindle Fire. Uh, and even shortly before the event, uh, news came out about how much it would cost and what it would be. Long and short of it is, it's a, it, it's a very similar hardware to the, uh, the Playbook. It is uh, Android-powered, but it is uh, Amazon's own heavily modified version of Android, so much so that the, the, the message is, this isn't a, uh, an Android tablet, this is an Amazon tablet. Don't worry about the OS that's there, just enjoy it, use it, use the way that we've, uh, we've built it. It, it is an, uh, designed to be a platform, obviously for reading, but also for getting it to their uh, Amazon Prime uh, streaming movies. And, uh, and, and, and really it's a great gateway to buy all of the stuff that Amazon sells that's digital. And, and, and that was the big announcement, but they also announced, um, I guess it's called the Kindle 2011, which is the, uh, uh, essentially the updated version of the Kindle that we all have right now, except with no keyboard. There is the Kindle touch, which is similar, but has a touch panel on it. And, uh, and then of course there are the existing Kindles, which are still being sold, right? And uh, there's a, a thousand Kindles that you can choose from. And each one of these, I think with the exception of the Fire, comes in uh, two different models, one of which has uh, commercials, essentially advertisements that appear 
and a version that doesn't, and you pay anywhere from two, maybe it's twenty or thirty bucks to to forty bucks to get the one without the advertisements that, that come up. So, did you watch the presentation? Uh, I watched about half of it. I, I thought it was interesting how he opened up with kind of a some summary defense of ebooks. What, do, in, what do you mean by that? As, he's saying uh, to review and to convince people who might not be listening. Here's why you might ever want this thing called an ebook. Like, look, I can look up a word, and I have lots of books in my pocket, and I had a little ad in the beginning saying, uh, you know, I'm technically illiterate, and I can use ebooks, and even, you know, <laughs> like, it was like reminding people, ebooks exist, they are a thing that people do, people seem to like them, here's why you might like them. So it's still at that stage where, you know, we wouldn't do this with an iPod, where it, it, the fifth iPod that comes out, they're like, you could bring your music with you wherever you go, it's really nice, like, they're, they're they're past the level of explaining why you ever might want to have a digital music player and onto the level of explaining why this particular digital music player is better or whatever. But it seems like ebooks, despite how far they've come, and they showed the graph of like the ebook sales passing the paper book sales and all that stuff, they still felt like they needed to open by explaining to people what the heck ebooks are and why people might like them. So I thought that was that was interesting. I don't know if that was necessary, but apparently they thought they felt it was necessary, and they would be the ones to know, right? Um, they've got the numbers. Yeah, so it, uh, the predictions on this were pretty much on from everybody. Uh, I remember I described it a few shows ago as uh, I thought it would be a magical, colorful window through which you can give money to Amazon, and Marco was much more succinct than he called it a vending machine mm. for Amazon. Uh, I think both of those things were apt, but the angle that I got out of this this whole announcement was slightly different. It comes back to one of the things that we've talked about in previous shows, uh, and that, that centers on uh, this Silk thing. Right, let's that, talk about this. So, Silk, uh, it's not a great name. I think they picked it because it's like a thin but very strong thread connecting you to blah, 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 some marketing BS. Uh, but the idea is that when you are web browsing from your Kindle Fire, which is the name of the color uh, tablet thing, rather than your Kindle Fire thing making TCP connections to the web server just like your desktop thing does, it is going to connect to Amazon servers and Amazon servers are going to get the web page for you and then give it back to you. Like it's acting like a proxy. Now, if you just know that about it, like, what's the point of that? Why are Amazon servers faster? Are they closer to me? It seems like it's making two trips. I got to request Amazon servers, then Amazon servers got to request the page. Then it's got to send the page back to me. That seems really dumb. Uh, the key to understanding this is I don't haven't gotten up this part in the presentation, but I assume they mentioned it is this, speedy protocol spdy mm-hmm. that google came out with i think it was like last year or maybe the year before that it was experimental then but uh it's a it's a new protocol for the web instead of http and i don't know how do you want me to go into technical details of why you yes might? yeah okay so of course so when your web browser requests a web page it first makes a request for, for the url that that represents the page and it has to open up a TCP connection, say, I want this page, and over that same connection, it will send back, the server will send back information that says, here's the page, and it's going to have the HTML content, right? Right. Now, modern web browsers will keep that connection open and say, well, I know I'm going to have to request something else because the page is just the HTML text, and the HTML is filled with image tags and references to CSS and JavaScript and all sorts of other stuff. The, the browser doesn't have those yet. It's just got the page. It says, okay, here's the page, and it's filled with this crap. Uh, and then it's, all right, I'm going to need that stuff. So, I'm going to make one request over the same connection. One one request for this JavaScript thing, right? 
But browsers, if they just use one connection, would be really slow. So they they allow themselves to have, I don't know what the limits are in modern browsers, but like four or five or six connections per domain, per domain name. Mm-hmm. Say, okay, I'll make one request for the JavaScript file, then I'll open a new connection and get this other JavaScript file, then I'll open a new connection and get this CSS file, then I'll open a new connection and get this image. Now I've got 50 other things I want to get, most of which are probably images, but I can't request them yet because as a, as a polite browser, I will only open up six connections per domain name or whatever the, the, the current limit is. It used to be much lower. It used to be like two or three, but now it's higher. Uh, and then it's got to wait and say like, the CSS has taken a while to come because it's coming from like, uh, you know, it, uh, for whatever reason, it takes a while. That, that thing is hung up and or a big image is loading and you could be loading smaller things. Right? You have to you have six little workers to do your things. And also you have to open up six TCP connections and there's a handshake involved there and it takes a little while to go. Um, it used to be even worse before Keep Alive was around. It would close the connection after I got a response and then have to open up another one. So you burn up a lot of your work on, on the overhead of opening and closing connections and you also are limited in how much information you can get because you only have uh, a handful of connections to work with and everyone else is just waiting down there. All those images on the rest of the page, you're not even requesting them. You could be getting them right now, but you, you haven't even started to ask for them yet. Uh, so Speedy, there are many many techniques that uh, have been used to, to get around this. Speedy is just Google's particular one. And if you go to the Speedy white paper that I linked in the show notes, it will they talk about alternatives of HTTP pipelining and a couple of other things. Uh, uh, what's the other one? I should look at the thing. It's like STCP or SCP or something like that. Uh, anyway, Speedy uses a single network connection. Uh, and it, it multiplexes the data over that one connection. So it even though it only was a single connection, it can request a whole bunch of stuff and then those things can come back in pieces interleaved with each other. And the thing will, and, and the, the protocol will sort out, okay, here's a piece of this file. But, you, know, it, you, don't, you don't have to wait for the one big slow file to come. If a little piece of some other file is available, it'll come over the connection too. So it's little, lots of little pieces of the files interleaved with each other rather than being a queue over a whole bunch of different connections. So it eliminates the problem of having to open 50 million connections. It eliminates the problem of having a queue of stuff that you have to wait for to come back. Uh, when the data is available, it will be sent to you no matter what. It's a two-way, bi-directional connection, so they can talk to each other over it. Um, and the interesting technical additions to it is that it's always SSL, and it's always gzip compressed. I don't actually, is it gzip? Yeah. Uh, which are two things that are optional on regular HTTP, but they just built it into this thing. I said, look, it's best practice, secure, it's make, make it SSL all the time, and compression uh, is a win for a lot of the content we deal with, so it's always gzip compressed. And they have, like, special purpose compression for the HTTP headers mm-hmm. where they're compressing a message of a known type. Like you're always going to have like a content type header or a content length header. There's certain headers that are pretty much always there. So they massively compress the well-known HTTP headers instead of compressing like you would with gzip. You can just make the HTTP, you know, the content type header be like header number one or something. <laughs> and header, I don't even know what the compression is, but you can imagine with a known data set, you can get huge compression. So, uh, this protocol invented by Google and actually implemented on Google servers and in Google's web browser, Chrome, uh, has been around for a while. I think it was marked as experimental or whatever, but Amazon has adopted it. Now, before I get back onto Amazon with this, uh, I just want to point out that this speedy thing is an example of Google not being afraid to try to make a better version of some sort of ubiquitous technology. Most companies wouldn't say, you know what we could do? HTTP is, is, you know, common and all, but why don't we make our own <laughs> protocol instead of HTTP? It just sounds nuts. Like, what are you, it's like, what are you talking about? What what's next? You're going to make something instead of TCP IP? You have a better uh, networking stack than that? You go back to NetBIOS. Uh, 
so they they made an entire and it seems like well that's never going to work fine make your own protocol it's like a little academic exercise but no one's going to use it everybody uses http well google happens to have a couple of web servers that you might have heard of and used on a daily basis and they also have their own web browser they said we don't really care if nobody uses this thing we're making speedy we're going to build it into chrome and we're going to put it on our web servers and when our web browser connects to our web servers you will have a better experience because it will be faster now when our web server connects to another site it'll, it'll be the same speed as everybody else but we have a big advantage over other people like you know if you use safari to connect to uh, your gmail account it will be slightly worse than if you use chrome right uh, and that that gives them a leg up on their browser side and on on the server side if you use their combination their servers seem faster like i could use google mail or i could use some other mail service but you know gmail seems faster for some reason well right. that speedy stuff helps with that uh, it's very bold and daring and it shows the confidence that they think they can take and this is usually true if some standard has been around for a long time you can probably improve upon it pretty well the problem is always like well what good does that do you if you don't get adoption it's pointless well they have enough adoption to make a significant dent in their business by doing this uh it's interesting to compare that to a similar proposal where they want to ditch javascript which is old and creaky and has lots of stuff wrong with it and they say well we do extensive amounts of javascript development here at google so we know all the bad parts of it and let's make our own language that's better than that and we'll build that into our browser and we'll write our stuff with it and stuff like that. And there was a lot of backlash from that. Maybe we should do a show on that in the programming languages like them trying to fork the web and make a proprietary language that they control. And people are all uh, kind of upset about that. But, right. you know, if they just did it on, on their products and just did it in their browser, maybe they could take a similar approach. Because be better things are better. <laughs> and there's... Even if they only do it themselves, they still have the advantage that their products are better because of it, even if no one ever uses it again. But now here we are with Amazon seeing the speedy thing and saying, you know, bet better things are better. Let's let's look into that. Maybe we can use that for something. And they decided this would help them make their mobile browser better because you won't have to have your mobile browser to make a million requests and, and, and grind through all this stuff. And actually, if you a lot of the performance uh, in like mobile Safari and stuff on the iPad has to do with JavaScript, but the network connections don't help, especially over bad network connections like 3G or when you're when you're on the move yeah. uh, on a phone type platform. If you can make only one connection, that really really helps you. And if you don't have to wait, if you can interleave all the available data through that one connection, it makes the browsing experience better. They also so Amazon is going to use Speedy, and then what you're connecting to is Amazon's EC2 Elastic Compute Cloud thing that they run all their stuff off of. And they provide as a service for everybody else. Uh, and when you connect to EC2, the application that you're connected to doesn't just proxy the stuff for you and doesn't just you know translate to and from Speedy and the various HTTP things. Uh, and the other thing they, they point out is that you know once you get to our EC2 servers, we have gigantic pipes to the internet and we'll get your data. We'll, we'll do the multiple HTTP connections that we have to do to talk to these web servers that don't speak Speedy. right? I wonder if they talk Speedy to the, the Gmail servers. That would be interesting if they do straight through for that. Uh, but anyway... They will also take the content and tailor it for you. So they're not going to send you back a giant five megabyte image if they know that, that, that you know, it's a waste on your screen. They're going to trim that image down to be the maximum resolution of your screen and make the image much smaller at the same time. And they will also do caching on top of that, where if lots of people are requesting a particular piece of content, they'll cache it in EC2 briefly. And, you know, so it's, it's acting as a caching, compressing proxy with a better protocol. Uh, and... I think this is also happening server-side as well. They'll also see that like, if everybody goes to a particular web page immediately clicks on this headline, we will prefetch the headline and have it start sending that to you. Now, Chrome does that already. If you use just the Chrome desktop browser and you go to 
you know, the Apple.com homepage and then you click on the, the main banner thing for the new iMac. Right. Eventually, Chrome learns that, you know, it, I, I don't know if it learns, but it definitely prefetches other URLs or pre-resolves domain names and stuff like that. So this is not a new innovation for them. But the fact that they're pushing a lot of this, the server side is very interesting. And it makes a lot of sense. Uh, they they pick, they saw a technology that speedy thing they could use. They have a, uh, you know this this stack of services, and that's what they're they're uh, leaning on top of to make their browsing experience better. And perhaps it's because I don't know what the hardware specs are in detail or anything, but perhaps it's because without this, their browser would seem slow. So it remains to be seen if this so will be like this. May be they may be compensating for something. It, it, we we can't tell because you have to we have to get someone using this and see what it's really like. But technologically speaking, it's it's a great move. Uh, to do this. But the interesting thing competitively about it is, well, one, one, they're pulling this thing from Google. But the second is th- they're leveraging their strengths. Their Amazon strengths technology-wise, like in terms of uh, fielding a technology product and not as like selling stuff, because obviously they're great at that, is their data center operations, sort of like Google. You know, when we talked about uh, what Apple was doing in its data centers and how it was uh, using third-party opportunities and uh, third-party products instead of rolling everything on its own like Google and Amazon seem to. Amazon has built a huge business about these cloud services, right? And they eat their own dog food and they use them. This, th- this is their strength. This is somewhere w- where Apple can't compete with them. Apple, which I have to think is in their sights, is a big competitor. Apple is not strong in this area. Um, and I remember when we were talking about uh, Apple's iCloud things, I said it was hard to imagine a future where data center operations aren't a really important part of what any technology company does. Right. Right. And, and, you know, and you don't outsource your core competency. Right. So it seems like Apple understands that cloud computing is important. Like everything they said about iCloud was like, yes, finally they're getting it. The cloud is important. Syncing, blah, 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 stuff like that. And it's too bad we didn't get to the Metro cloud stuff yet, but similar story there. Uh, and in other things that it does, Apple really wants to control the whole stack. They want they want to control Mac OS X and iOS from from the compiler all the way up. Like they didn't even like using GCC. You know, we we have our own compiler. We got our own language. We got our own stack. We control the entire software stack. But in iCloud, they're like, yeah, we well we can let some people have huge portions of that stack are 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 not just hardware but software written by other companies. Really important parts of it is like, well, we'll let Azure handle this. I'm gonna use this for CDN and you know whatever. Again, it's still speculation as to what they're actually using because Apple's never gonna come out and tell you what they're using, but I would imagine if they had something great to say about it, they would. But even if they were writing it all in-house, what Amazon does, uh, fielding it as a product, it really, really makes your services better. If you if you have something to use internally, it's usually, it can only get so good. But once you have to start giving it to customers, that really makes your product better, particularly when it comes to software, because you're willing to put up with a lot of stuff when you write your software internally. But once you start giving it to customers, they have higher standards than you do. So... It's really smart of Amazon to sort of hit Apple where it can't hit back, right? They didn't, as many other people point out, they didn't say that the Kindle Fire is like an app platform where they're going to have a big app store. Like they didn't do what all the Android tablets did. We're exactly like the iPad. We have an app store. We got, right. this, you know, developers come make your apps, play Angry Birds, you know, read your news, watch your movies, stuff like that. They are leveraging their strengths, which are different than Apple's strengths. The, the places where Apple is weak, their data center operations, the, the huge variety of content they have, where Apple's not weak there, but Amazon is stronger, arguably. And they're valuing the purchase price over the quality, the design quality of the product. Not that they're bad looking or anything, but they're they're not even saying, look at this beautiful tablet. Doesn't it look awesome? Isn't it better than an eye? It's, look how low our prices are. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to get this into a lot of people's hands. Uh, 
and when I got finally got to the point when the fire was introduced in the little keynote, when when uh, the CEO of Amazon, Amazon, whose name I can't last name I can't pronounce correctly, uh, builds up to pulling out the fire and saying, "Look at our tablet; it's great or everything." He's showing a slide containing a huge menagerie of name brand services that Apple provi- uh, that Apple that Amazon provides. It was like Amazon Prime, EC2, Amazon Web Services. I don't know if he had S3 up there, but and he was like. How can we make a product that that builds on all the and what he's saying is how can we make a product that builds on our services? Like we have great cloud services. We want a product to unify and expose them. And, and that's a very different angle than Apple or any other hardware makers coming out of. Apple's not saying we have these great network services, how can we get them to you? They're saying we have this great hardware product and through it we'll make some stuff for you to do with it. Like you can buy from a store and we'll make this iCloud thing to sync your stuff. Like it's the the cart and the horse are reversed in both of these situations here. So it's fascinating to see a network cloud. I hate saying cloud, but I don't have another good name for it. A cloud services company saying that's what we're going to build on. And, and it, we were all focusing on like, well, the Amazon's going to be a way for you to buy stuff. And it is. And that's entirely true. And that's, I'm not discounting that. I'm just not talking about it because it seems obvious at this point. But the, the inter- more interesting point from this presentation that I came away was, they are building on their services, kind of in a way that Google does, although Google doesn't pimp their services individually. But like that's what, and and it makes, it's bad for Apple, I think, because their two big competitors, Google and Amazon, both have strengths in this area that Apple is weak. And the, the two of them took years and years and years and years to get those strengths. You can't get them overnight. You can't hire a bunch of people and, and get that strength. The same way that Google can't hire like a couple of designers and have like, oh, now, now we can make hardware and software as well as Apple. Mm-hmm. To, to be able to design hardware as well as Apple, it takes decades. Uh, it, you can't just get that overnight. And in the same way, I think Apple is really, really behind on this cloud stuff. And it's, it seems to become becoming increasingly important. Uh, my next thing I have in here is a link from our friend Horace. Horace he, of uh, asimco.com. Yeah. Co-host of Critical Path here on this very show. Very network, I, rather. I haven't listened to his latest episode yet because I'm behind, so maybe he talked about this, but he just posted something today that was great. Uh, there's the case against the Kindle as a low-end tablet disruption. Mm, we didn't talk about that very much. So he's what he's discussing is that low price that I was talking about. Obviously, the Amazon strategy is get the price down, get this thing into people's hands. Uh, and the model is we make money on the blades, not on the razor. So here's your razor. Use this thing to buy stuff from us. Um, in that, looked in that perspective, it's like, well, what are, does, what, how does all the speedy stuff we just talked about, how does the silk business play into that? Uh, it plays into it, I, I guess, if you're using the Amazon.com website through your tablet to buy stuff. And that doesn't hurt. Uh, it plays into it in a way from that, that Chris Espinosa article I'll talk about in a little uh, a minute, but that's... that's what, do you, a, a what, do you, what do you think, John? What do you think they're making on this thing when they sell one of these? Uh, so that was Horace's point. The Horace, Horace's point is that if you look at this device and look at their pricing, it doesn't seem like they have much, big margins. Like Certainly not Apple-sized margins, you know, 30%, 40%. Right. I don't even know. Like, they are not... These are not big margins because as, as many people pointed out, as you talked about with Gruber, that people seem to think that the hardware is very similar to the playbook hardware and the playbook was way more expensive than the fire. Uh, even if it's like fire sale, haha, fire sale prices from the vendor was like, <laughs> we got all this stuff. We were supposed to make playbooks and that's not quite working out. So we'll give it to you at a discount. But it, it, and it's seven inch instead of a 10 inch tablet. So it's not the same price as an iPad because the screen is less expensive and, you know, and it has less memory and everything about it. But 
if they're not losing money on these things, the margins are really, really small. Right. And so Horace's point is that if you have a really low margin product and you're going to make your money back by selling the, the blades, you're selling uh, the books, movies, whatever it is, that's where you plan to get your money and your whole strategy is give everybody this thing through which they can buy stuff from us. It takes a long time to make the money back, even if you're not taking loss, but it's like to make, you know, Apple, as soon as it sells you an iPad, gets the whatever, 30% margin on the $500 product, right? How long does it take to make that same amount of money by selling 99 cent book, well, not 99 cent books, 99 cent songs or $9 books and you have to give some portion of the money to the artists and, you know, as a retailer, it's harder to make money. If you look at what Apple, Apple does a pretty good business retailing digital media, but that's not making them their money. They they say, well, we run our music store at like around break even, like they're they're making money on it, but it's not big big money. Yeah, but Apple makes big big money selling you those computers, those MacBooks, and those iPads, and they make it as soon as you buy it. You buy that iPad, boom, that's their profit right in their pocket. They don't have to wait to see what the attach rate will be, which is how much stuff you buy. That's a term from the video game industry. I think they use it elsewhere. How much other stuff will you buy for? How many games will you buy when you buy your console? And that was the other example that Horace used in the article is game consoles. Game consoles have a similar model where they sell you the game console either at a loss, sometimes at a big loss, or at just barely break even. The only exception in that uh, world is Nintendo, which has historically sold his cons- its consoles never at a loss, at a small profit or whatever. But then for the people who do sell it at a loss or whatever, to make your money, you got to say, oh, I got to sell this guy a lot of games because the margins on games are great. I just got to print a, a CD or DVD or, or even cartridges, you know, and we make huge margins on the games. So we want to sell as many games as possible. And what that means is you have to keep that console in the market for years because the longer you keep that console in the market, A, the cheaper it gets to make. So in your first or second year yeah, of the thing, maybe you're taking a loss or breaking even, but in your third, fourth, and fifth year, it's become, you know, technology has advanced to the point where now you can make that same console way, way cheaper. Sometimes, as is the case in Sony, they reduce the number of chips until the entire console is down to like one chip after it's been in the market for years. Like uh, Sony started introducing the slim versions of the PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3. It's because they can make it even cheaper. Fewer chips, smaller size, lower power, more reliable. Their margins on that hardware are going up finally. But you have to leave it in the market for years. And during that time, you know, PC gamers and everybody else, the technology has advanced. So game, the game consoles are, are old and slow or whatever. But the, the reason they're, they're left in the market for so long is because they need, to, they need to make their money back. Like they took, you know, a $50 loss on every single PlayStation 3 they sold. And they sold millions of them on launch day. It takes a long time to make that money back. And then you get into the fat part where you're like, now, finally, we're really cranking, really making profit. Those, these PlayStations are so cheap for us to make. We sell them. We still get like 40% margins, but selling these cheap PlayStation 2s, but in the slim model. And, and people are buying games like crazy. Our developers have really figured out how to make games. Like they want to stay in that fat profit zone for the longest possible time. But what it means is that the products don't get better that fast. Now, compare this to Apple, where Apple makes its money by making you the better product. They, they put out the iPad 1, and they're not like, let's let the iPad one stay in the market for four or five years so we can really milk that. No, they want, they want the profit from selling the device. They're not trying to milk your music sales profits or, or your video rental profits or anything like that. They need to get the iPad 2 out there pronto so people will buy a new iPad and give them another 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 bucks in profit. Uh, so all their profits, are uh, Apple's profits, are earned immediately and immediately fold back, folded back into development and they... And, and they release a new better one. Now, the game console makers, as soon as the game console comes out, they start working on the next one. Like maybe even before that. They have to be ready. Like what the PlayStation 4 started development probably before the PlayStation 3 was launched. 
or uh, you know, in this generation there's a little bit of variability, but maybe two to three is a better example. But historically, they've been working on the next console as soon as possible. So it's not like they're sitting on their thumbs, but they know they can't put out the next console. Like, why would they? Would they be they'd be killing the golden goose? They'd, we're just getting into the part where we're raking in the money. Let's not put out a new console. We need to just let this sit for a while and make our money. And then, you know, there's a four or five year cycle or two or three year cycle at least. Uh, but again, it's very different with Apple. Apple wants to get a new one out every year, get your money. Now, Amazon, uh, what Horace is saying, and it's very astute, is a lot more like the game console guys because they want to make their money. Uh, he wants to make his money uh, on the uh, on selling you video and books and movies and everything else you can buy through your Amazon device, right? And that's a slower way to make money. It It's not, you know, Amazon's not going to be burning down the door to release a, a much better uh, version of the Kindle Fire six months from now. Uh, this is the this is the theory in the article anyway. Now, I, I think the, the counterexample might be that they've been releasing Kindles pretty regularly. Has it been in a yearly basis? Maybe the chat room can tell it. I think it's been more than a year, but... Maybe the chat room knows this, but I feel like I, I feel like every it's not like every year they've come out with a new one because there's been Kindles have been out for more than a few years. Yeah, and and Horace's point is uh, the point is that like you can only do that if the advances you can make to your to the device part of it aren't that big of a deal. It's like yeah, we can make you a better thing, but like it's a mature technology and they're not that many big advances. Whereas Apple's iOS devices are still or have so far been in the part where each new one has something that's like, wow, yeah, the old one, like the retina display. Yeah. This is, this is a big step up. It's not, it's not a tiny little incremental change. Right. Obviously they, they get way faster compare the a five iPad to the original iPhone. Like we're still in that part where in this business selling tablet type devices and smartphones and stuff, we're still making the big leaps. And so if you sit out a year, a year and a half or, or too long, and this is weird saying this because the iPhone 4 has been out for 18 months or whatever, you know, other people can eat your lunch by putting out a new version. So if you try to let these Kindle Fires not advance as fast as, say, the iPad is advancing, eventually your Kindle Fire, is, even with all this Silk stuff, is looking pretty, you know, old and crusty, right? They're saying Kindle, the Kindle 3 in the Toxic Sushi is saying the Kindle 3 is 14 months old and W. Summer says it's about every two Yes. But I would say with the Kindles, if you look at them, like what did they really change besides making it cheaper? And that's different than what Apple does. Apple maintains the price and adds more stuff. Now, right? don't they make it cheaper, though? I mean, there are a lot of people who are saying that the latest Kindle, I'm not talking about the Kindle Fire and the things that were introduced the other day, but I'm saying that the um, that the the Kindle, for lack of a better term, the uh, the darker Kindle, Versus the earlier lighter Kindle, a lot of people were complaining and saying it's, it, they're using lower quality com, uh, uh, components or components. Yeah, that's as you say. That's, that's their model because they want they want to get the price down. They're not trying to like what I was going to say is when they keep releasing new Kindles, they're not like, oh, this Kindle, the screen on this Kindle makes the little past Kindle screen look like crap. Of course, I'm going to what they would it's not do so is, much yeah, the screen; it's the they surrounding. They plastic. would improve the screen, but then you'd buy it and you'd be like, all right, so the screen is a little bit better, but the rest of the Kindles feeling pretty cruddy. You know? Yeah, because even cheaper. just the, the graphite one, when you hold it, it's, yep. it's lighter, it's smaller, but it does it doesn't feel like. It feels cheaper and cheaper, flimsier. And, yeah. and can you imagine, like, Apple makes it stuff thinner, too. But when they make them thinner, they don't make them feel cheaper. You know, they they feel better with time. because that, So I actually I think, think if you were to pick up an iPhone 4 and compare it to any anything that came before it, progressively they're getting denser and, and nicer and uh, higher quality overall. And that's yeah, something and, that and, Apple's really good at doing. They, they almost never, even, uh, who was it that was, was it Marco? I forget who it was. 
that had uh, they had taken i'm pretty sure it was marco they were taking close-ups of even just the 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 slight edge on the aluminum yeah, that was that was Marco. That MacBook less, less sharp. Yeah, yeah just just in a, such a subtle way, the edges of the aluminum chassis are, are less sharp than they used to be in the previous generation. It's these subtle refinements and improvements, and obviously, it it would cost more money to round off the edges than it would to just leave them sharp, since they're making them with a laser or whatever. Uh, whereas the Kindles going the other way. They're they're still too sharp, but but yeah. So th- this is a very di- a difference in philosophy, and and even though the Kindles have been revved, they've been revved in ways that don't make you say, "Oh man, I need the new Kindle so much more than the past one," because of some big quality improvement. Yeah. Now the Touch Edition and removing the keyboard and stuff is helping there, but it'll be interesting to see what the quality is like on the new Kindles. You did you order one of the e ink ones or just the Fire? I ordered just the Fire. Yeah. So uh, because we'll this is this is another this is another question: is how many people are sitting there with a Kindle saying, oh, this one isn't good enough. I need, I need to get the touch one now. I yeah, need to yeah. get the other one now. And, and I don't think Amazon is concerned about that, whereas Apple would be concerned if you had your iPad 1 and you saw the iPad 2 come out and went, meh, I don't really need the iPad 2. And some people did do that. But I, same thing with the phone. Like iPhone 4 comes out with the retina display. If you would say, eh, my 3G is okay. Some people did that, but there are a lot of people who are like, oh, man, I need that iPhone 4. Like, but Amazon, as far as it's concerned, if you want to keep using your Kindle 1, the very original Kindle, and you keep plunking the money and buying their books, they're okay with that. They don't have a problem. It's it's a different model. Uh, uh, now, what, what Horace was saying is that in the market for tablets, like maybe they can get away with that with e-readers, but in the market for tablets, it could be that if they don't rev the way Apple revs, like don't just give us a new Fire in, in a year, but give us a new Fire that's like, that is to the original Fire like the iPad 2 was to the iPad 1. If they don't do that kind of jump, two or three iterations and Apple's tablets are so much better than the fire that it's kind of like, Oh, you got one of those fire things. Yeah. That, it, they have nice content and all, but yeah. you know, come on. It's like you're using windows 95 and we're all <laughs> Mac OS 10. <laughs> right. So yeah, some in the chat room points out that Apple might, might not be concerned. They don't get it every time. They just want to get them every second revision or whatever. But the point is Apple makes its money selling, selling the thing. And they want to give you a reason to upgrade. Whereas as Amazon is not so much into that, and it'll be very interesting to see. Can you can you sell a tablet like that? Can you sell a tablet like a game console where you just let it sit in the market, and the other ones get so much better? Especially when there's a direct competitor. It's as if uh, there's for, there are many other reasons why game consoles don't this, but don't do this. But it's, it's as if you come up with the PlayStation Two and you sit let it sit there for five years, and during that time, your competitor makes five new console versions. So by the time year five comes around. PlayStation 2 is competing against something that has graphics that are like 50 times better and mm-hmm. has motion control and has all sorts of things. And you're like, you know, that's not how the console market works for a variety of other reasons having to do with game compatibility and libraries and release schedules and, and IP and blah, blah, blah. If people want us to do a gaming show. Maybe we will. But uh, in, in this market, Apple's already there doing the thing where they make you want the new iPad. Amazon's coming into that later and saying, we have this thing. It looks like an iPad, but we're going to treat it differently, or it seems like they're going to treat it differently, uh, but we'll see. So, uh, I thought that was a, a very astute insight into how Amazon's model is different. Uh, different in three ways. Different in the content way that we all talked about. Different in the building on your cloud services, an area where Apple's weak, which is something that I noticed. And in the pricing structure of how they're going to make their money and how uh, and what they want you to do with the consumer behavior that they're trying to encourage. Uh, now, competitively, I think being low-priced... I didn't get a chance to talk about this with iPhone stuff, so I'll just throw it in a little bit at the end here. I think yeah. being low-priced is really 
important. And as I've said for years, I, I was saying that Apple needs to get their iOS devices, their phones in particular, get it on more carriers that was saying get on Verizon, you know, ASAP because it's kind of too late. It was getting to be too late and they just barely got it in time, I think. Spread the thing out and start doing what you did with the iPod. Diversify. Make the cheap, low-cost ones. And they kind of do that where they leave the old one in the market and stuff like that. But I think Apple really needs to step it up. Uh, uh, Tim Cook always likes to say he's not going to leave. What is it? He's not going to leave a price umbrella or he's not going to make a price umbrella. There's some phrase that's saying, I'm not going to leave a gap in the market where my, our competitors can come in and make sales that we can't make because we weren't meeting a price point. Apple won't make crap. But at a certain point, you can make a pretty darn good phone like, you know, the, the 3GS. It's not a bad phone. It's a pretty good smartphone, right? Uh, it's not as good as the iPhone 4. But now when the new one comes out, presumably they can make the iPhone 4 cheap enough for that to be the $49 model or one or whatever. Apple needs to push down into the market with good quality phones, even if they're just last year's phones or maybe like the stigma of last year's phone. Maybe make, you know, diversify in the same way that you had the Nano and the Classic and the Shuffle. They're all iPods, but they're three different products, and you don't feel like you're getting last year's product because you oh, I'm getting this year's shuffle, even though you know this year's shuffle is no greater than last. You know, last year's shuffle really it's still a shuffle compared to the the big fancy one, right? I I think Apple needs to start pushing down, pushing down price wise with the iPad. If it's just with one model of the iPad, fine, or maybe diversified and have a high end alone, but definitely with the phone, push down to that forty nine dollar phone and don't just make it last year's model because I think it's a stigma attached to it. Because Amazon is, is going down there. Amazon's selling $79 Kindles, right? They're, they're selling a lot. They're going to sell a lot of razors that way. And I think Amazon's ability to make money off the blades, continuing this, belaboring this analogy, mm -hmm. is better than Apple's ability because they, they just have a wider selection. They have, they have more experience selling stuff. Uh, Apple's great about selling digital stuff and they're especially great about selling apps and Amazon is not nearly competitive there. But Amazon sells like, Amazon sells everything. Like they sell you lawn chairs through that thing. You're not going to get the lawn chair on your device, but it'll be delivered to your house. But you bought it through them. Like Amazon is the is the retail king, and so I think they have more bandwidth to make the big bucks selling the blades uh, than Apple does with just its catalog of stuff that it has now. Now there's a there's a couple questions I want to ask you. One of, one of them relates to iPods. Another relates to Amazon Prime. And uh, we also need to talk about Fringe, but before we do that, I want to I want to do our second sponsor. Can we do that? You can. Okay. Did you, were you just unplugging? I was just taking a drink of water. Oh, that's okay with you. It's all right. It was a long rant. Sifter, second sponsor. It's an intentionally basic bug tracker. What does this mean? Well, these days teams are made up of much more than developers. They're not all uh, hardcore programmers anymore. You've got designers. A lot of the time you want your clients, uh, if, if you're developing with the uh, involvement of a client, you need for them to be able to get in there and, and file bugs and help you figure stuff out. I mean, you've got business team members, you've got people in sales, you've got non-technical users. That's the key here. Well, it's important to get everybody involved. It can't just, just be the developers anymore. This is 2011, people. Come on. Most bug trackers are great for the developers, but uh, they're, they're not very good for people who are not technical. And there's a very fine line between providing these great features for the developers, the ones they need to use, but also being able to loop in your designers, your clients, your non-technical people, and get them to participate. Well, Sifter focuses obsessively on making sure that non-technical team members are comfortable diving in and, uh, and helping close bugs and, and close issues. And that's what it's all about. You go to sifterapp.com. You can try this thing free for, for 30 days. And just try it out, whether you're just a lone developer, whether you've got a whole uh, you know, thousand-person team, doesn't matter. Check them out, sifterapp.com. 
written by the uh, the amazing Garrett Diamond. Go check it out. So your uh, questions, do you remember them? iPods. Uh, we'll start with that. Um, I think I talked to, to John Gruber about this on the talk show this week, but I wanted to get your take because you are you are an avid iPod user. You have three iPod touches. Is that correct? That's correct. Three of those. Do you have any regular iPods or do your kids? Because you've got kids. Yeah, we have a quite a collection of iPods. And quite a collection of kids. Just two. Just two? Yeah. All right. I thought you were adding some, upgrading them. Yeah. You're just going to upgrade the current ones. Yes. Uh, do they have iPods, traditional iPods, or are they using the two of the touches? They're using one of, they share one of the touches. The great kids you have that they can share one, one piece of technology. Yeah. Well, you know, they still grab ours whenever they get their little hands <laughs> on them. It's not, it's not like they feel any propriety towards, you know. What do you make of the rumors that are saying that uh, the traditional iPod, the iPod classic may be, may be canceled and that maybe everything except the iPod Nano will and, and the iPod Touch will go, will go away, go the way of the dinosaur. I think the classic is overdue because like, you keep a product like that in the market just for DJs. There are people who, who enjoy and use the classic and they will be annoyed when it's gone, but there's, I don't think there's enough of those people. I'm amazed that it has stayed around. Maybe stayed around out of like nostalgia, kind of the way they kept the Mac. You know, remember the Mac Classic too? Like the only reason that yeah. form factor was around because it was like classic Coke kind of marketing angle, and it was nostalgia. Uh, so, so yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to be surprised if the classic goes away. I thought, I think it should have been gone already. And what was your other question about the touch? Yeah, I mean, do you, so you're saying then that the touch, which has far, far, far less storage than the iPod Classic. And is more expensive at the lower end than the higher end Mac Classic. You, uh, Mac Classic. Mm-hmm. iPod Classic. You're saying that uh, the iPod Touch is going to replace, essentially, fill the, fill the space of the iPod no, Classic. No, I think nothing is going to fill that space for a while. Like, nothing can fill it until flash memory gets up to whatever those things, whatever those little hard drives are up to. Were they up to 160 or something? Yeah. Or how big they were. So flash, what do people do? You don't, don't you think that Apple... Will, will eventually get up to that point. But until it does, Apple's not going to be crying over the fact that they don't have an offering at 160 gigs. Really? They no. They'll just DJs have 360 gigs iPod Classics anyway, so now they'll have six iPod Touches, or they'll just use a laptop, or there's so many, so many other options. It's not, it's not a consumer problem where people are saying, I need that 160 gig model, and you cannot remove it from the line until you give me an alternative 160 gig model. That's not a problem that Apple has. So you don't you don't think that they will feel obligated in some way? You don't you don't feel that they will No, they're not obligated to unless there's consumers who want to buy. There's not enough people who need that much storage hmm. for music. There's just not. Huh. I, oh. I don't know. I mean, I just I think uh I think they're gonna keep this thing around. I just it, it feels it feels wrong to me. It feels wrong to me that, they, that they, something doesn't feel right. I feel like, I mean, I won't be shocked if they get rid of this thing. They can keep it around. I mean, like, it's, it's So like, should we what, buy them now? Because I, I want to have one of these, John. What, the classic, you mean? Yeah. Well, well, so what's the cost of them keeping around? They're like, it doesn't cost us anything to keep them around. Right. Even only a few people buy them. Like, you know, there's, obviously, it costs them something to keep it around. But they, they have accountants who are going to say, this is how much money we'll save if we ditch this line. This is how much money we made from it last year. This is the trend line of how much money we're going to make from this year. It's a business decision. It's not, you know, anything more than that. You, but that's what I'm saying. How? What does it cost the money to keep it around? 
Oh, you have stock to deal with. You want to sell as many of of the same thing as possible. If you sell only a few of a thing, then you still have some constant overhead for each product line dealing with, uh, you know, uh, manufacturing those components and buying a small quantity of those little hard drives that starts to cost you much more than buying a humongous quantity of the flash. And it's talk to an MBA. I don't know the details, but it it comes down to a a business decision based on pretty clear math. And the only thing that might enter into it is sentimentality. Or, for example, we really need a DJ market, even though we don't make enough money. And we really need those guys because they are the thought leaders in consumer electronic buying, but they're not. So sorry, DJs. I think they'll be pretty upset if they, they take that away. Uh, one more thing on Amazon before we uh, yeah. to, to jump back to that is that someone, uh, actually, no one, I think I found this myself somehow. Uh, there was a, a venture beat, completely unsubstantiated rumor that says uh, the headline is Amazon has palm in its shopping cart. Will it click buy? Well, Amazon would have bought it with one <laughs> click, first of all. But uh, Right. So remember, we talked about, like, I, I suggested now that palm seems to be out of favor at HP. Amazon could really use a company like that that would let it have even more full ownership over its OS. And what I said was like, that was the time to have the conversation before you release your tablet. Decide, do we want Palm? Do we want to put off our tablet thing and put it out later? Amazon apparently decided they're definitely putting out their tablet now. It's important to get into the market. They're going to go with what they developed, which is this Android thing, but it's not, it doesn't really look like Android. And what I said was that even if they decide, no, we have to ship now, we got to get in the market, it's time to get the ball rolling. They're not closing the door on some day buying Palm at fire sale prices and getting to own their own OS because the Amazon, uh, the Kindle Fire 2 or whatever the heck they call the next version of it could run WebOS, no one would notice. The only thing you would notice is like, well, you bought apps from the Android app store that run on the thing, but I really do not see the Fire being positioned as a, you know, hey, run apps on it. It, you, it does that, but, and maybe people will develop for it and if they sell a hojillion Fire... You don't then, think that's their uh, angle it, at all? You don't think that, the, that this is part of... Not, that's part of the thing, but it's like that's not what their strength is not what they're leaning on. If if they fall ass backward into it, sorry, marker. Uh, <laughs> if if they fall backwards into it, they won't complain. So if they sell tons and tons of fires because they're just so cheap and people just want a really cheap tablet, then suddenly app developers are going to perk up and say, "Well, you know, we got to start developing for that." But they, their expertise is not in having a development platform or supporting developers or treating them nicely or not giving away their apps for free because they agreed to it in the terms of service or changing their prices. All these things that they do makes Apple look like a dream uh, to deal with. So I'm not banking on, I don't think Amazon is banking on their strength as an application maker. Uh, And that's why I say the door is not closed to going with WebOS and owning your own OS. If they decide that's strategically important for them because, you know, Google is a competitor, but they're using their technology and that's not a great long-term way to go you know, whatever is underpinning the Kindles, you know, it's Linux and stuff like that. But like, the, it's it's not owned and controlled by another competitor company, right? So, I think that this rumor of them buying Palm, uh, even though it's completely unsubstantiated, is that the fact that this is in the air now. Uh, it's it's something that we're thinking about. At the very least, I would say Amazon should hire all the people who are being laid off from HP or who work for Palm. But at the very least, get the talent right. Because there's a very small pool of the talent of people who can work on mobile devices and stuff like that. And the, the Palm people did great work. They made a great product. You want those people. Even if you don't want the company, you want the people. Uh, but buying Palm, I still think it's worth talking about. And as I said in the previous con- podcast, I have very strong arguments for and against buying Palm. Uh, but I don't like the fact, if I was an Amazon, I would not like the fact that we are using Android. That we have to say that word. 
that our apps are Android apps. And even though we have our own store and it's separate and we're not using Google stuff and it's open source, it's just a little wiggy, you know? Yeah. Fringe. Fringe. You don't want to do iPod or uh, uh, iPhone announcement predictions that you refuse to make uh, well, a Ruby show. We have to. We have to, I guess. I, st- I guess we can't talk about the fringe then. Yeah, yeah let's hear. What, what, do you, what do you predict? Well, no, first, you refused to make a good prediction on, on uh, the talk show. So I did. You... No, I made a, pre- I made a prediction. But what was it then? It was reiterated then. My prediction was that we will, uh, and, and I, I mean, maybe I'm changing this because I've been thinking about it a lot. I, I really think that the iPhone 4 form factor is a great form factor for the reasons that, that John said on that episode. We should probably put that in the show notes. But he he gave a lot of really good reasons why Apple would not go with a teardrop shape, as everybody has been predicting. And it if if you had asked me to make a prediction about the form factor of the new iPhone 5 before I had heard those arguments, I would have said, duh, it's gonna be a tear, teardrop shape, dummy. But now I've I'm hearing all of his arguments against it. I it, it's very difficult for me to see why Apple would create something that, in short, w- is an unbalanced device. And if you look at all of their devices that are that are portable, all the iOS devices, they're balanced. You can hold them up or down, and that's absolutely one of the strengths. If you compare how effectively you can rotate an iOS device uh, sideways or even upside down, depending on the app. You don't need to know which end is up. You don't need to know that. And in, in fact, uh, that's, I think, I think a huge strength of, of the platform is that it, it works just as well upside down as it does right side up or sideways, whatever. It's just great that way. And the, the rotation is seamless. All the apps just do it. It's actually criteria for submitting an app in, in many cases that it has to work that way. So the idea that you would have something that would not be balanced in your hands when you're holding it upside down or sideways uh, that's a very compelling argument against a teardrop shape. So I'm I'm going to say, uh, and you know what, I'm I'm okay being wrong about this. But Apple, if they do a teardrop shape, they'll have a compelling reason as to why they did it that way. But I'm I'm going to say that it's going to be a similar form factor to what we have right now with the iPhone four. I wouldn't be surprised if it was lighter or thinner. Uh, but I think that the iPod Touch is, is the edge of thinness. I don't think we can go any thinner than that and still have something that people could comfortably hold and not worry about snapping in half like a, like a matchstick or a toothpick. I made you go first because when, when uh, you were on the talk show, you were swayed by Gruber going first. And you're like, you know, those are all, you know, have a strong opinion of your own. You just go with, yeah, the last guy who talked about it was very convincing. But then if you listen to someone else, would you go with that opinion? You're like, no. leap in the wind. No. All right. I don't. So I, I'm I'm convinced. I'm convinced by what he said that yeah, there's right. there's no way that they could do an unbalanced shape. Now, if they do, it it'll it'll I'll really want to hear what their thinking is for it. Because look at this. Look, go back to the the very first the very first iPhone. Even the iPod itself is a balanced device. And 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 I've used the iPod upside down plenty of times. Uh, but it's still balanced, and and I don't see that as a downside. I see that as an upside. I don't, I don't know. I I think I think it'll be a long time before we see a teardrop shape. I mean, obviously, it's a it, people were speculating about that, but now I'm just sitting here looking at it. And I I don't know. But I'll tell you what. I want I want a lighter, even if it's the same thickness. I just want this thing to be lighter. This is a heavy phone. 
It's heavy. It's just density that's getting you. Yeah. All right. So we, there was a, follow, a quick follow up on what you said about the orientation because we did have a lot of people following up on the orientation of like iOS devices and apps being rejected for different orientations. Yeah. I thought I had waffled enough on this, but apparently not. I, I, I last time we discussed it, I said Apple wants it to work in all orientations, and they might reject your app if you're willfully not working in some orientation that you could. But of course, there are apps that only work in landscape. And the example I gave was games. Lots of games are only landscape and stuff like that. So people felt the the need to send me uh, messages to tell me, to point me to the exact section of the guides that say, you should run in all orientations on the iPad in particular. Uh, but if your app needs to run in only portrait or landscape, uh, you should. And it gives a, a bunch of examples for if it has to do it, so on and so forth. So yes, the Apple doesn't require that every single app work in all orientations. It's, I was just comparing it to Microsoft saying, if you want to work on only on an 11-inch 16 by 9 tablet, you can make your app only work in this very specific case. Offering that as an example is very different from Apple trying to say it should work in all your orientations unless you have a good reason. If you have a good reason, fine. Uh, so that, that was worth bringing up. Now, for the, for the predictions for this... Yeah, what do you say? For the thing now... Uh, Gruber and I discussed this actually after the show. I don't think we came to any agreement. The, the, well, first thing I'll say is that I think it's more wedge-shaped than teardrop-shaped, the shape they keep showing in those rumors. Uh, I have the same... Everything you said about the, the wedge shape is true, and my big uh, objection to the web shape in terms of, like, is this a good idea to have a web shape, besides all the stuff that he mentioned, is that, like, battery technology is not advancing that fast. If you make it wedge shape, you are subtracting battery, and most of what's inside the phone is battery. There's not a lot of room, and there's not a lot of empty room, and it's basically just a big battery and a very tiny circuit board put around the edges barely, and then a screen on top of it. It's just a big battery. If you make it wedged, you are subtracting a pretty big amount of space that could have been holding battery. And for what? So it's thinner, but only on one side? What does that... You know, thinner is is one thing like, oh, we made a thinner phone. If it's just thinner on one side, what is it that I can now do with my phone or increase comfort that is worth the battery life I'm losing from you shaving off that edge? Mm. Now, it could be that if the, if the other part of the rumors are true, that it's actually a bigger screen and stuff, that we're not actually using battery because what we cut off in, in the thickness, we gained in width and height because the whole phone is bigger. That could be possible as well. Uh, where I come down on the phone is that I will be... Uh, I'll do it in, in levels of, of certainty. I will be insanely shocked if this phone has a glass back on it. All right? I will be very surprised. I agree with if, that. If, I will be very surprised if this phone does not have a new form factor. So like you I think, think you think that will it will have a completely different form factor, not just something thinner that, that like, is, does thinner is, count as a new form factor? Something that is immediately recognizable if it was next to an iPhone four that's not an iPhone four. Well, they want that, and I think the 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 consumers expect that, and I think there would be a lot of grumblings of oh they didn't change the form factor, right. it's the same old phone. You know, now, I think the they thing, have to, but I don't know about a teardrop. So the, the thing that's before getting off, like, the, why would it look different? All right. I, I think they're overdue for a design. Now, the, the thing against that looking different is you remember when the MacBooks sort of like went to unibody, they had a period of stability or even 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 before the unibody even the aluminum book, there was a period of stability in MacBook and MacBook Pro design where it's like it's silver, it's rectangular, the keyboards in the middle, the power button is there, there's a screen and the details changed. But they have like a middle period where despite the fact that they were revving the cases every single version, even if it's just changing the ports on the side, like on a MacBook with FireWire or without, like, oh, it's a new case. I can tell it from the other one. But they decided, that like, kind of like Porsche 911, this is what this product looks like. A MacBook is a silver box. It looks like this. This is where everything's laid out. There's a trackpad. You know, minor differences with button or no button or whatever. 
they could have decided this is what an iPhone looks like. It's rectangular solid uh, with flat front and back, curve, curve top and bottom. The antenna is around the side. And we'll change the details, like maybe it's not glass or maybe we, we fuse the two things and it doesn't look like an Oreo sandwich anymore or whatever. But like this is the shape. Uh, that's the only thing making me like what would make them not change it. I think it needs to be an all-new case. I think it will be an all-new case. Now, finally, the final piece of that is, so I'm saying, definitely not a glass back, almost certainly a new case, but then it's like, oh, so, all right, so fine. Is that case teardrop-shaped? And that's where we get into my, my hemming and hawing about the battery. What, what I'm leaning towards for the teardrop thing is, first of all, there's so much noise about this teardrop thing, I have to imagine that if, the, if it's not released, it was at least a possibility or something, right? But the thing I lean towards on the teardrop is like, Maybe that's not the new iPhone. Maybe that's the new iPod Touch. Because the new iPod Touch could benefit from the bigger screen because people use iPod Touches kind of like as a gaming alternative. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that teardrop thing as the new iPod Touch, they always do weird crap with the iPod Touch. Yeah, they're sacrificing battery, but maybe it gets wider. Or it's going to have a, a, a better camera, a cruddier camera. The screen's not as nice. The screen is bigger, but it's not as nice as, as the, the iPhone. Like they do all sorts of weird on Apple-like stuff with the Touch. Because they have to keep the price down. It's not subsidized, right? They can't make it as good as the iPhone 4. It would cost 800 bucks. So when I see that teardrop thing, if it appears, I would be not surprised to see that that's actually the iPod Touch, assuming there even are new iPod Touches. Yeah. I'm assuming there, there will be. Uh, so, so that's what I think. I think new case for the iPhone, no glass back, probably something that's identifiable immediately as not the same as, as the current iPhone 4. And teardrop... I'm down, I'm down with all of the anti-teardrop things. I, I just think just because we think it's a dumb idea doesn't mean it's, it's not going to be introduced in an Apple product. They do, they do weird idiosyncratic stuff. All, they think of the buttonless shuffle, right? Yeah. They, they don't bat a thousand. Uh, and I would love to hear how they're going to explain to me why that taper is a good thing. Because we all know the reasons if it's not a good thing. Why, why is it worth doing that? What, what about it makes it feel better, work better, be able to fit into better pockets? Maybe it comes out of your pocket easier if they have any kind of rationale or if they just go and look at this nice taper. Next slide. Like if they do that, that's what Steve Jobs would do. If he didn't have a good reason, he'd be like, he'd say it. It's like, look at this great taper and moving on. And we just left to say, you know, the press is left to either say, agree and say, oh, look at the nice taper without thinking critically of like, so what's great about it? What is it? it you know, takes away battery size, but what is it even? I don't know. So I'm all flustered about this, uh, uh, but I will still be shocked if it doesn't have a new case. And yes, not teardrop, wedge-shaped. Not teardrop. I don't think it looks teardrop. The rumored ones, you know, yeah, they look wedge-shaped in profile. Wedge. And also, you didn't talk about this too much, but like, would you like your phone, your iPhone, to get bigger in width and height? No. Most people, like, I think it could get a little bit bigger and not feel like... Have you seen... The, the droid, the, the big honking droids, like these 4G things, but I don't know how big the screens are, but they seem like they're big. Like it's not a seven inch tablet, but you're like, what the heck am I holding here? I feel it's like that side talking thing. Yeah. Holding your Mac Pro up to your head. <laughs> so I, I mean, you know, again, I think I think if you ask most of the people that I talk to who are iPhone 4 owners, if you ask them what they think of it, they'll say they like it. I'll say, to, you know, what's wrong with it? They'll say, eh, it's a little heavy. And I end the course of glass back. What will replace the glass back? Yeah, they, that's that's why they keep going around in circles with this because you want it to be metal for durability, but it's not so great for the antenna if the back is metal. And when you 
if you make an external antenna, then you get the touch it juice. You want the antenna to be internal inside a cheap plastic back because that has really good RF performance. You know, yeah. so you need more right. But that doesn't look nice. So they're like, well, glass. That's not bad for RF. Uh, and we can get a strong glass, and it, it's strong for bending. But people don't break them by bending them most of the time. The grill grass can withstand a lot, but yeah, the glass still shatters. It's not that, like replacing the back isn't that big of a deal. It's not that expensive to do, but and it looks really nice. I bet they're probably happy with how it looks as a product, but I think they want to experiment more. Carbon fiber, part, part aluminum like the iPhone 1 was with part plat. I don't know. There's lots of places they can go with it. If they can get it to work with a metal back with just some sort of radio transparent plastic section, like all the plastic apples where the radios come through, like they kind of do on the, the uh, iPad and stuff like that. I don't know. That's, that's their problem to sort out. They have, they have conflicting requirements there. Good RF performance, but also attractive and sturdy. Will the iPhone 5 be John Syracuse's first iPhone? I'm not going to let my wife listen to this episode. She still desperately wants an iPhone, and I still say the plans are too expensive. Uh, if it's teardrop-shaped, I have another reason to say, oh, come on, we're not getting that teardrop-shaped now. Now you got Wait me doing it. You said it was wedged. Shape. I know, and no, I said, now you got me doing it. Uh, <laughs> I, would, I would like an iPhone. I don't want to pay for the, 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 the data plans and the voice plans. I don't use a mobile phone that much, so I just keep getting iPod Touches, and I will just be continue to be disappointed in the ways that the iPod Touch does not measure up to the current generation phone. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll get another iPod Touch. Okay. Fringe. 77 minutes in here. Yeah, what do you want to say about Fringe? You like it? You are, you're, you remain much more enthusiastic about Fringe than I am, and I thought that the that episode we just saw was not a great episode. I, I was I was saying that it was, you know, was okay. Um, I know a lot of a lot of people who are new to Fringe who loved that episode. <laughs> you know, you know one person. I can't believe she liked like that's not representative of the show. It wasn't a good example of an episode. I don't know. I was just saying she liked it to make you feel better. She liked it. No, I did like it for real. I wasn't what did just you What that. did you like about it? Didn't have Pacey. <laughs> the damn fine man. <laughs> what? No, seriously. What? What did you? I mean, obviously, I she, I was intrigued by it. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's a better way to say it. I thought it was a fine episode. I mean, it's the best sci-fi on uh, on network TV. Like I, I, I didn't really understand what was going on at all. Yeah, she was intrigued, but, but I was Maybe. intrigued by it. Maybe I'm not accounting for how interesting and novel the characters are if you haven't seen them for three seasons, you know, because Walter's kind of a character and Olivia is somewhat interesting and then they do kind of X-Files stuff. Did you watch the X-Files, Faith? Yes, I did. And did you like that? I love the X-Files. And did you, st- did you not see this episode of Fringe as like a really, really, really poor man's X-Files? Um, I, I don't <laughs> think I would say that, though. No. <laughs> yeah, I, I, all right, well. We'll see how I, I think you should not have watched this episode and should have started from the beginning because I think the best things Fringe has to offer are about the the nature of the overall story arc and the individual details and individual episodes. They can be faulted a lot and there are lots of problems there. But if you were just to sketch out the story in outline form, like I got an idea for a series and this is what's going to happen. You'd be like, that's a cool story. I'd watch that show. Yeah, and I agree. That she, needs, she does need to start at the beginning and she probably but will. You, but you spoiled like no, it's, it's, it's not so spoiled. When, it's not so spoiled. Hard when the series like she's watched this episode already. You've spoiled stuff for her. No, if anything, if anything, I think that she's smart enough to not not be swayed by the little things that she's heard here. Get out the men in black thing and just zap her, and then she can start from episode one. <laughs> Who's going to give her episode one? We got to take up a collection. She's got to get you. all three series. You can, you can buy them on iTunes. Expensive. 
Yeah, well. You Plus, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of time commitment that she'd have to invest. That's not. It's, it's, it's not true. so much money. That's why I'm not the one encouraging her to watch Fringe. Because if I wanted to make her watch a show, I'd make her watch like The Sopranos if she hadn't seen it or something like that. She doesn't but, want to watch that. It's too violent. Yeah, that's you get into that another. She's episode. very very sensitive. Of, of Faith violence. in violence. Yeah, that's a good topic of the show. I, I, and I would address the mean people thing, but we don't have time. Maybe next episode. Yeah, that's well. Maybe in, in supposedly her show ends at eleven forty five and then it's this fifteen minute gap. So I could do a brief fifteen minute after dark in there talking about mean people and then we could start my show on time. <laughs> okay. All right, John. Well if people if people want to hear more uh, of this show, they can hear all of the previous uh thirty five episodes of this. That's something like, you know, a lot of these shows go over an hour. That's like forty hours of content that we've yeah. provided to them. Mainly you have provided to them. Uh, they can do that by going to 5x5.tv slash hypercritical. If they go there, they will see the list of episodes. They can click on the episode they'd like and see all of the show notes for it, which John Syracuse has carefully curated. And uh, you can follow John Syracuse on Twitter at Syracuse. No Z in there. Figure it out. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. And uh, you can also rate this show on iTunes. It's a great way to help new people find out about it, and we appreciate that. Oh, please, we have 999 rate ratings on iTunes right now. now. Who's so, going to be no, number 1,000? Who's, who's going to be? Uh, iTunes caching is such that 1,000 has almost certainly come through, but you can pretend that you don't understand about CDNs and caching and think that you are the 1,000th person. So, yes, put us over, push, push us over the limit. The 1,000th reviewer. You won't know that because it goes up by ratings, not reviews. So there's fewer than a thousand reviews, but there's almost a thousand ratings, and that's the number they show. The one thousandth rating, we won't be able to figure out who that is. Yeah, I was going to say they could have, they could get a free, you know, like you could, you could uh, have dinner with them at the local pizza place. If we ever get to a thousand reviews, I don't know how we'd know that some person would have to sit there and count them, or at least count up the pages and assume that there's an equal number per page. But yeah, and you should also mention <laughs> the incomparable. The incomparable podcast. You got news about that, right? We do have some news. The, John Syracuse upset me by going on another another podcast. And at the minute that he did it, I said, I have to listen to this show. It's, I was on that before I had a show here, I believe. Mm, yeah. Well, now I, I found out about that show. After, and okay. I had to listen to it, which bothered me. I only want to listen to you on this show. But it turned out it was a great show. It's got, uh, well, you can you tell who's on that show besides so, you, Jason Snell, who else? Dan Morin, Glenn Fleischman, Greg Noss, Steve Lutz. It's, it's a huge rotating crew of people of depending people. on what they're talking about. And it talks about uh, geek culture. Like there's a comic book episodes occasionally, book clubs that talk about sci-fi and fantasy books, uh, movies, television. And depending on who's into a particular thing, for example, I'll never be on a comic book episode because I'm not into comic books. So, But they have people who are heavily into comic books. They come on for the comic book episode. But right. when they have... The episodes about Star Wars, Star Wars, I'm there. So it's not just me or, or just any individual people. And uh, and it's now on 5 by 5 So yeah, I've been listening to this show. And I, I actually, when when Jason Snell, the um, founder of the show, uh, was doing it, I, I told him early on, I said, Please, you know, l- let me help do this on 5 by 5 Well, we're, yeah, we're going to see where it goes. We're going to see what happens. And, and this great, I told him, I said, listen, you, you've got you've to make this show You've got to keep doing this show. And he did. And I mean, he, he's, he's been doing it. He's been doing all the editing himself. And, and I've, been, I've been bugging him. Let, please, please bring this over to 5 by 5 Please bring this over. Because this is great. This is exactly, you know, this is what, what the listeners want. 
and bring it over and we'll 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 join for it. And he did it. He finally did it. And then uh I wrote a thing in, in Ruby that imported all the old shows, it brought it over. So it, from from show one to the current show, the incomparable podcast is now uh a shining star in the uh five by five crown. And and the shows are not like about news or like the new movies not that have all. come out this week or not about the new books that have come out. So I would strongly encourage people to look through the back catalog and there's going to be shows you're not interested in. If you're not interested in a particular television show or a particular kind of comic book or movie, don't listen to those episodes, but look through the descriptions. I guarantee yeah. you, you will find at least four or five episodes that you want to cherry pick from the pretty extensive back catalog. A lot to, of episodes. Uh, get a feel for the show. It's a great, it is a great show. It's great fun. It's, it's smart, geeky people talking about the things that they love and what could be better than that. That's right. And uh, sometimes John Syracuse is on. And rate that on iTunes. When this was not on 5x5, when it was toiling in obscurity, I would say, how is it that my show doesn't have, has like all these reviews and all these ratings, but The Incomparable, which I think is also a great show, has like nothing. No, you know, it has almost no reviews. So please, maybe this week, instead of going to review my show or in addition to going and writing a review on my show, listen to The Incomparable, see what you think of it, and rate it. At the very least, click the little stars and put some reviews in because we people on The Incomparable feel bad. That these other shows right. are doing so much better than we are in the <laughs> iTunes world. So now it is time to focus the full power of the five by five audience on the incomparable. Uh, and you can you can do that by going to the five by five section of iTunes. There's a a whole section that's just us, or you can click the iTunes link on five by five TV slash incomparable. It's all good. Welcome to the family, John Syracuse. Times two, twice as twice as much. All right, so that's it. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week, though, right? Unless you're going on vacation again. You going on vacation again? I'm all out of vacation, guys. All right. right. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you again next week.